Several weeks ago, I came across an article. It's just kind of stayed with me. And uh, to get going this morning, I'd like to read it to you and see if it kind of lands with you. When Adam and Eve plucked the fruit of the garden, what was their sin? Disobedience? Surely. Gluttony? Surely. Impatience? Believing a serpent rather than God? Yes, and yet. Yet, I think the core was a feeling of entitlement that overcame their love for God. The fruit is good, and I deserve it. It belongs to me. They were right. It was good, but they were wrong. We should get no good thing until God decides. And even then, we should be overcome with how unworthy and grateful we are. That really sat with me. Uh, that, that author views entitlement as the original sin that gave birth to original sin. Now, it's just one person's opinion. Just because they had the idea doesn't make it so, but it resonates with me. I mean, I, I think it may be on to something. And for sure, I think in, uh, the original sin of the American suburbs may be entitlement. It doesn't take us very long to start to think we deserve all of this, that we are owed the benefits of living in a place like Johnson County, which in turn begins to create a mindset that it's all about us. Everything is about us, our wants, our needs, our biases. It's all about me. And here's what I've noticed. That entitlement shows up in really weird places in my life. When COVID hit, I tried to be very mindful of others when I would go on my morning runs. I figured people, you know, may not appreciate old, sweaty, gaspy guy coming anywhere near their six-foot protective bubble. So I began to make it a habit to give such a wide berth that I would at times actually leave the sidewalk or the running path so that people had the space they needed to feel comfortable. Sometimes, I kid you not, as I got close to them, especially if it was a cold morning and my breath was showing, I would hold my breath when I ran by them so that they would feel safe. I was a COVID saint, is what I'm trying to tell you. But I began to notice something. They weren't moving for me. I mean, not an inch. By golly, they were there first. And they were not going to budge. Sometimes they were walking right in the middle of the path like they owned it. At no point did anyone ever offer to yield the path to old sweaty guy. They deserved the path. They were owed that path. They were entitled to my deference. I'd gripe to Julie about it constantly. Spoiled, entitled, Johnson County jerks, blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't even acknowledge my graciousness on their behalf. But it has occurred to me that I thought I deserved their acknowledgement because I was trying to be such a good guy. I was entitled, I felt like, to them moving every now and then because I'm such a good guy. They owed me. I was entitled to it. I'm telling you, entitlement can start to show up in weird ways in all of our lives, which means that perhaps the most countercultural thing that Scripture says to us is that it's not true. It is not all about you or me. 
Our first parents, Adam and Eve, may have given us a proclivity to think that it's all about us, but the cross of Jesus and the mission to which we were called clearly says that your life and my life, not about any of us. And in our passage today, Paul really helps us try to combat that very easy tug towards entitlement by giving us two principles that he draws from the example of Christ that I think are are really challenging. They've been challenging to me personally. Here's the first one. Follow Jesus into self-denial for gospel unity. What does that mean? Well, to see the strength and to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here, let's Let's reflect for a little bit on what he wrote in Romans chapter 14, which we spent a couple of weeks on the previous two weeks. In that chapter, Paul begins to speak to a debate in the Roman church over whether it was necessary for Christians to observe what we might comfortably call today kosher laws or the Jewish dietary laws. And he argued in Romans 14, other places in Romans, really all throughout the the New Testament, that the most mature and robust understanding of the Christian faith understood that those laws no longer applied to them because the purpose for which they existed, which was to provide a visible, tangible point of separation between Jews and Gentiles, was just no longer necessary because Christ, in his life and death, tore down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and was making one new people in himself. So those laws were no longer necessary. But he also pointed out that not everyone would have the freedom that he had to eat pork or one of the things that was clearly opened up to him because of the Old Testament laws, fried catfish. I mean, I'm sure he had fried catfish and loved it. Having been raised in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish religion, he knew that some people would never be able to get past the idea when they lifted one of the forbidden foods to the mouth that they were sinning, even though they knew that they really weren't. So the solution that he proposed to this dilemma was simple. He said, neither side should impose their viewpoints on the other. Neither side should judge one another. And both sides in their actions toward one another should be ruled by love. And he carries that idea into our passage today, but he leans into the idea that the mature have a bigger obligation. Those who understand that they have been set free have a bigger obligation motivated by love. He understood as someone who was numbered, as he talks about in Romans 14, with the strong, someone who understood that the kosher laws had no authority over a follower of Jesus, that his primary obligation living in that freedom was to consider the needs of those whose consciences wouldn't let them share in that freedom. He might have the right to eat a bacon sandwich at the church potluck, but he didn't have the right to force his opinion on others and make them feel uncomfortable in that midst. Instead, he says, you want to know what my right is? You know what I have the right to do? It's this, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. He had the right to do what was in the best interest of others, to build them up, to deny his right to eat what ever he pleased because the kosher laws held no sway on him as a follower of Jesus, he had the right to lay that aside for the sake of unity in the church. You're saying, well, I don't get why this was such a big deal. Here's why it was a big deal. Maybe you've not thought of it. In these days, 
the church gathered for worship and instruction in a home. And if you read carefully the, the, the New Testament, the book of Acts, you will see that a component of that was a meal. And a component of that meal was the communion experience. What he was urging a stop to was people eating things when they were gathered together as the church that they knew violated the conscience of some in the church and therefore was making a travesty of communion. Paul may have had the right to eat kosher prohibited foods at church, but his greater obligation was to build those up around him who didn't have that freedom. And in this, his example was Christ. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The life of Christ was putting the needs of others. And this is not the only time that Paul mentions this. He rings this bell over and over in the, in the parts of the New Testament that he wrote. In fact, the most famous of those times is Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What, what does that mind look like? Well, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What Paul is saying in Philippians 2 and in Romans 15 and a whole lot of other places is that any talk, listen to me closely, any talk about what you have the right to do is diametrically opposed to the Jesus that you claim to follow. The goal of a person who is following Jesus is to follow Jesus into self-denial and in the context of the church, Deny what I have the right to do for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we applied Paul's teaching on kosher laws to the freedom granted in Scripture, while obviously being within the bounds of sobriety concerning alcohol. Those who have the freedom in their spirit then to consume alcohol have every right to take wine with communion, and yet we gave you really bad grape juice just a little bit ago here at Blue Valley. Why do we do that? We're for the sake of unity, for those whose conscience won't permit them to take alcohol. The same is true for why we don't permit alcohol at church events. Why, for instance, and I, I don't mean to be funny, I mean to prove a point, why we'll ice down water at our church picnic in a few years or a few weeks and, and not beer. It's for the sake of unity with those whose conscience won't permit them to do that. And it is motivated by love. For my entire vocational ministry, I've noted with some alarm how Jesus followers and preachers are really comfortable demanding their rights. I'm not talking about our right to worship or pray, or share our faith. I'm talking about how comfortable we are in demanding our right to be served, to be entitled. I'm entitled to good service, so it's okay for me to be rude to my waiter or waitress. I'm entitled to share my opinion, and if it upsets other people, so what? That's on them. 
But what has alarmed me in the lives of Jesus followers and in preachers for decades now has become a full-blown crisis of witness. People, you know this. I mean, people left our church, people left every other church I know of during the pandemic over whether the approach that that church was taking to COVID met with their expectations and what they believed they had the right to do. People believing their rights were being infringed upon and were, were willing to leave the church and disparage congregants and disparage leaders if they disagreed. That's just one example that I could point out. There are many, many others. The bottom line is that Paul is calling us to put others ahead of self, to follow the example of Christ for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. And so he concludes this section with the following benediction and challenge. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, give you the power to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may have one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, regardless of your convictions. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We glorify God when we lay down our demands that our rights be met, and we glorify God when we do more than simply tolerate people who views on certain things in the world are different than ours on non-essential matters, to the point that we actually welcome those who have completely different ideas about things than we do, and we seek to always do what is in their best interest. Paul says here, your right is to put others in the body of Christ ahead of yourself. Follow Christ in this example for the sake of unity. And then his next principle, using Christ as an example that he gives us, is this. Follow Jesus into self-denial for gospel proclamation. I want to revisit three verses real quick that are towards the end of our passage today. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning what? Christ entered the world, was incarnated as a Jew, a servant to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness. What does that mean? In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Jesus born a Jew to fulfill the promises through the Jewish patriarchs, through the Jewish prophets, that God would send a Messiah to redeem the Jewish people. Nobody of a Jewish background in Paul's church would have disagreed with that at this point. But then he says that Christ became a servant also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God with his mercy. These two verses really distill the mission of Christ and kind of put a double underline, really, under the, the entire purpose of the book of Romans in Paul's mind. Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people in order to demonstrate God's truthfulness in fulfilling the messianic promises of the Old Testament, and also in order to bring Gentiles to know the one true God. 
So God the Father's purpose was that his son, born a Jew, might live and die to bring the reconciling love of God the Father to those who were of every tribe, tongue, and nation, including the people who are gathered here this morning. Then Paul goes through uh, four real quick citations of the Old Testament to prove his point. He said, I can prove my point by, uh, by going, directing you here and here and here and here and a whole lot of other places. And then he closes with a verse that if you come to Blue Valley at this point, hopefully it's somewhat familiar. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. All right, so let's think about what it is that Christ came to do. And, and to do that, I want us to go back to a word used of Jesus in verse 8. It's the word servant. And I want you to notice that the object of it was both Jews and Gentiles. Paul is saying that Jesus came to fulfill the promises of the Father to redeem both Jew and Gentile. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ, his death on the cross, Putting others first was for the purpose of making God's mercy known to the world. Paul is calling us to follow that kind of example. Paul is calling us to say, if Jesus Christ submitted himself to the will of God the Father like he did in order to bring salvation, the message of the gospel to the world, if we claim to follow him... We need to practice that same kind of radical self-denial. Now, a little insight here into my sermon writing process. I typically write uh, sermons on Wednesdays, and that's a day I work from home so that no one bugs me. You know, I can just be there in a quiet house and two bird dogs and get things done. I have this big window in in my office at home. And when I got to this point in writing this message... There was a lot of window looking. I didn't know what to do. Cursor blinking, looking out the window. I don't know what to do. Because I don't know how many times over the years I've challenged people to get out of their comfort zone to share their faith. I mean, you've heard me say over and over that the reason you have your home is not because you liked the lot, the neighborhood was cool, and the schools were good. You've got your house because God put you there by his will for your home to become a gospel outpost in your neighborhood. There are people that need Jesus he put you there to reach. You've heard me say over and over how the old tried and true come with me to church is going to be less and less attractive as the the years roll by because people just aren't going to want to do that. So you're going to have to be more vocally active with the gospel in sharing your faith with the people that you know in the context of your relationships. And I didn't want to do that again, even though I just snuck it in. Anyway, I didn't want to do that again. So I began to reflect on the theme of these 13 verses. And the Lord led me someplace that was really uncomfortable. As Americans, and to a certain degree as Christians, we have the right to have opinions on issues and topics and the right to share our opinions on those issues and topics. So, you have a right, I have a right, to have an opinion on Trump or Biden or guns or COVID or a host of other things that are fracturing American society right now. You have the freedom to share those opinions with others, but here's a challenge. 
have you and I become so identified with those opinions and so hostile to those who don't share those opinions that you would never be a candidate for someone who doesn't already share your opinions to come to you to talk about Jesus. I'm afraid what most of us, and I did say most of us have done with our social media opinion sharing and other forms of opinion sharing, is communicating to others that we would love to talk to you about Jesus, provided that you already exist in my narrow ideological parameters. If you agree with me on this stuff, I'll, ha- I'll be happy to talk to you about Jesus. But if you don't, I'm going to try to convert your mind to bow to my wishes before I ever get around to Jesus. Yes, you have the right as an American to free speech. But you have a God-given obligation to the lost that crosses ideological and sociological and ethnic divides. You are not permitted to have an opinion on anything other than the essentials of Scripture that is held so strongly that you make enemies of those that you were called to reach. Paul said it like this, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, to order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak. In other words, Paul, if he was with Jews, fit in. He didn't try to say, you know, you can eat a bacon sandwich. And when he was with the Gentiles, he fit in and said, sure, pass me seconds. When he was with people whose conscience was weak, he'd say, you know what, I'll come alongside you. Why would he do it? He tells us. He says, I did these things. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in the blessings. People need that. (laughs) They, They don't need your opinion on something for which a million opinions exist out there. I am not saying compromise the gospel or the moral or the social or the, or the relational implications of the gospel. There are things, if you believe in Jesus, that are going to flow downhill from that, and we are not being told in Scripture by Paul to compromise on that at all. But what we are being told is that a lot of the things that we spend a lot of time building tent poles around in our world have nothing to do with the gospel and everything to do with us thinking, I have a right to shove this down your throat. And so the gospel suffers. And so, following Jesus into self-denial for the sake of gospel proclamation means that you communicate to the people around you that that's the most important thing to you and not your opinion on a host of things that are dividing everybody. Paul began the book of Romans, by reminding us that we are entitled to nothing but the wrath of God 
then he very quickly says, you've been given everything because your Savior gave everything to show you the mercy and the grace of God for salvation. The practical effect of that for his followers is to both within the church and outside the church to never think you're entitled to anything, to not demand your rights, and instead do what he says in verse 2. Set as our right, our goal, to please our neighbors for their good, to build them up and bring them to Jesus.